Welcome to Iron Matters, the podcast series brought to you by Hemochromatosis Australia. In this episode, we're talking about treating hemochromatosis with venesections with Cindy Bryant, who's a clinical nurse specialist from Wangaratta with a special interest in haematology. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you, Mark. Cindy, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and your areas of particular clinical interest. I'm really lucky in that I've had a wonderful career in nursing. I've been a nurse for 35 years now, and I've worked in lots of really interesting specialty areas. But um, one of the very first areas I worked in was um, haematology oncology, and I seem to have come full circle back to that point, and I'm now working in an oncology unit where we treat haematological disorders as well as hemochromatosis patients. So dealing with hemochromatosis patients, you would be very familiar with venesection, I am. Can you tell us what is a venesection? A venesection is the name we give to the process we do to take some blood from someone, which is the current best treatment for haemochromatosis. So it literally means um, cutting into a vein um, and we just pop a needle into a vein and we drain off some blood to reduce their iron stores. So you've touched on the reasons for venesection. Could you actually tell us why a venesection is so useful in the treatment of someone with haemochromatosis? A person with haemochromatosis absorbs more iron than they need to and the body has no way of excreting iron and so it builds up and it gets stored in their organs where it can cause damage. So we want to take some of that iron back out of the organs and get rid of it. So we take some blood. The iron is, uh, most of our iron is actually stored in the form of haemoglobin and when we take someone's blood we get rid of some of that haemoglobin. When the body tries to rebuild what we've taken away they take some of the iron out of the organs therefore lessening that deposit in those places. What are some of the challenges for patients when they're first alerted to the fact that they actually have to have some blood taken? It's quite daunting for people because often they haven't heard of hemochromatosis. So they've suddenly been diagnosed with a disorder that they've never heard anybody else talk about. So there's a whole lot of knowledge that needs to be attained. It's really important to sit down and have a really good chat with someone and explain to them what it is and how they um, got it, that it's a genetic disorder and that this treatment um, is ongoing. It's an ongoing treatment that you have for life, but it, it is a really simple and has a really effective result to the treatment. So moving to the practicality then, How do people go about having that blood removed? Is it as simple as just going along to, say, the Australian Red Cross Blood Service every so often and just giving some blood? It's exactly the same process. And in fact, we like lots of people who can to give their blood donations at the Red Cross because their blood from people with hemochromatosis can often be used to actually help other people. So not only are you helping your own disorder, but you're helping somebody else as well. There are situations where the Red Cross, for various reasons, aren't able to use the blood of someone with hemochromatosis, but on the whole, they can. And often people with hemochromatosis actually need venous sections more frequently. So they're actually a terrific donor source for the Red Cross. So a person's physician, I presume, would then offer them a schedule for donation. They would become a therapeutic donor? They would, that's right. Their doctor will fill in an app on the computer, so there's no longer any paper forms. Their doctor will sit down and with their provider number they can actually enter that app and give the details and a venesection schedule will be generated and then they can attend the Red Cross. So on the flip side then, from a clinician's point of view, you're a nurse, so you've obviously dealt with people with haemochromatosis. 
What are some of the challenges for the clinicians when it comes to helping people in this regard? So some people are trickier than others to perform a venous section on, and that's when they'll often go to a hospital or a GP clinic. For things like poor access, some people have lovely big juicy veins that jump out at you and are very easy to access. Other people don't. And so one of the reasons they might come to a hospital is because of the poor access to those veins. And just on physical access now, where do people find themselves? Perhaps not everyone has the option of being able to go to the Australian Red Cross Blood Service. What other options are available for people? The Red Cross Blood Service is terrific because they have good extended hours and some patients struggle with getting time off work to get their venous sections performed. So the Red Cross is great from that aspect, but if that's not a resource that you can use, some GP clinics perform venous sections and various hospital outpatient clinics also perform venous sections and there are some pathology services who um, also have that service. What can people themselves do to perhaps best prepare for venous section? Is there anything that a patient should be aware of before they come along? It's really important to have a good breakfast the day you're having a venous section and be drinking well and be well hydrated. So we always encourage our patients to have a hearty breakfast, have some good snacks with them to eat, drink well, several glasses of fluid that morning, preferably even the day before, to just make sure they're well hydrated. Keeping warm is good if it's the winter and we'll often put a hot pack onto an arm when we prepare the patient when they arrive in the clinic to just warm up those veins. Some physical exercise is really good. If they go for a brisk walk or up and down a couple of flights of stairs, that also helps to um, make that access easier for us nurses. What about side effects? Can people experience any side effects from venosection? They can. Some people ride through a venosection with no side effects whatsoever. They come in, they have their blood taken, they leave again and there's no issue whatsoever. Other people can struggle a bit and they don't cope very well with the change in the amount of fluid in their blood and they can be inclined to feel a bit woozy and faint. So that's important to watch out for. There are also those among us who uh, are not that enamoured with the idea of a needle of any kind. So, um, Cindy, can you tell me if there are any other concerns that people may have about approaching venosection, perhaps for the first time? Nobody likes to have needles and many people don't like the sight of blood as well. So it's really important from a nursing perspective to make people feel comfortable and relaxed and shield them from whatever they don't need to, you know, whatever they can't cope with. So sometimes we might just help have someone chatting on the other side of them, talking to them so they're distracted from what we're doing on the side we're working with and they don't have to look at the um, look at what's happening. Drop the blood bag out of view where um, they just can't see it draining away often helps for people. And um, often that just that distraction and something different to be focused on really helps them to get through. Talking about venosection there, are there any side effects people might experience following a venosection? After a venous section, there are a few things we like to keep an eye out for. It can develop a hematoma at the site and also phlebitis from infection that might be inadvertently happening at the site. The patients can also feel tired or a bit weary for, for 24 hours or so, some people. There is a possibility of bleeding after the infusion. We tend to always put a bandage around the arm, but also tell the patients to just be aware and keep an eye on that site, looking for bleeding, looking for infection. Long-term, you can get some scarring, so it's a really good idea to use alternate arms, each venous section, just to go from one side to the other. And um, it's also really important to be monitoring the patient through these venous sections. So we're looking for what their haemoglobin is and what this serum ferritin is doing. 
it is possible to actually bleed someone so much you actually make them anemic and we're certainly trying to avoid that. So it's really important to be watching the haemoglobin and you wouldn't tend to go ahead with a venous section unless um, your haemoglobin is greater than 120 grams per litre. Monitoring the serum ferritin is also really important to tell you whether it's safe to continue taking more iron out of someone. So we monitor that probably every four to six venous sections initially but as the serum ferritin comes down and gets closer to the goals that we're aiming for you would monitor more regularly just to make sure it's actually safe to remove more iron. Cindy let's touch on the education of patients. So I suppose clinicians would need to educate patients about the disorder itself but of course there are some genetic implications aren't there for hereditary hemochromatosis. There are, and something I always like to do with someone who's new to hemochromatosis is to really sit down and um, spend some time with them, helping answer their questions, but also helping them understand the process that we need to go through and how important it is that their family members are made aware of this so we can track down other cases, seeing this is actually passed on genetically. Cindy, with a special interest in haematology, is there anything that you've come across or discovered yourself in your journey over the past few years that's given you pause for thought around haemochromatosis? So over the last five to 10 years, there's been huge advances in what we know about hemochromatosis and how we diagnose it and look at it and treat these patients. So in years gone by, there were patients who were diagnosed or told that they had hemochromatosis. They started to come along for venous sections and then they've just been keeping coming for the last eight or 10 years. Now, some of these patients were misdiagnosed just because we didn't know then what we know now. I went through a process of actually going through every single one of my patients in Wangaratta and looking up their gene studies. And interestingly, a third of those patients did not have hemochromatosis. So I went through this undiagnosing phase. So what that brings us to is it's actually really important when we start out and we have a new patient coming in that we know that they have got hemochromatosis and they are suitable candidates to need venesecting. So does that mean, in fact, these people did not have hereditary hemochromatosis? That's correct. They did not have hereditary hemochromatosis. They often had a raised ferritin, but it was for a different reason. And for different reasons, you wouldn't actually perform a venous section. There's quite strict criteria for who receives a venous section. And if someone's ferritin is raised for another reason, it's really important to find what that reason is and treat that appropriately. Cindy, for those patients who might present some difficulty in finding a way to actually take the blood, are there other strategies that clinicians can use? There are. Sometimes if it's really, really difficult to access a vein, we'd normally go in the cubital fossa, but sometimes people just don't have any veins there that are accessible. So what we do, and I've known other people to do in other clinics, is to actually cannulate the patient. And you can get away with a needle as small as a 22-gauge cannulation needle. Pop that in and then connect it to a three-way tap and a 10 mil syringe, which then the three-way tap then connects onto the venous section bag. And you can very slowly and methodically just sit there and draw blood out encourage it with the syringe if it gets a bit sluggish and just let it very, very slowly flow into the venous section bag and you can successfully take a unit of blood from someone with that method. Occasionally we've used an ultrasound to locate a suitable vein too, somewhere in the upper arm. When people experience venesection, what are some of the outcomes that might come along with the fact that they are having regular venesection, especially early on? 
So initially when people are diagnosed, they can come in with quite high ferritin levels and it's really important to bring those levels down reasonably timely fashion if we can. So we like to venisect every week and that seems like a lot, but it's the ideal is to be bringing it down in a timely way. Sometimes these people can need venisections for 12, 18 months, two years to bring their ferritin back down to an acceptable level and that's a long time to be having weekly venisections. So they can sometimes struggle to keep reproducing that blood you're taking away. We want to be doing that because we want to be using up that iron that's stored in your liver or various other places but the body needs other things to create hemoglobin as well and sometimes a little bit of extra vitamin b12 or folate can help that process of rebuilding that hemoglobin and those red blood cells that needs to be passed by a doctor um, nurses shouldn't be ordering these sort of things but it might be a nurse's role to suggest to a doctor could we give this patient some b12 and some folate just to help that process along and help them maintain those weekly venisections if they can't keep their hemoglobin above, usually we say about 120, then you have to delay a venisection, give them a week's rest. And that just prolongs that process of de-ironing. We call it de-ironing. How can clinicians ensure that they're working in the best possible way to get a good outcome for people with haemochromatosis? I think one of the ways to really give the patients the best possible care comes from working as a team of three. It's the nurses working with the doctors and with the patients. We all have a really important role and the best outcome for these hemochromatosis patients is where all three of those units work together effectively. So it's really important to keep the communication up between those areas, to share knowledge, to work together for the best outcomes for the patient. It sounds like awareness of hemochromatosis is really growing. How would you compare it to days gone by when perhaps people didn't know quite as much about the condition and it was going undiagnosed? We're moving, really moving forward in that area and it's terrific to see more and more GPs and nurses starting to know about hemochromatosis and to be looking for that when they're doing other tests and things. When someone presents with some various signs and symptoms, the doctors are starting to be more aware and the recognition is increasing, which is exactly what we want. Cindy, where can nurses and GPs find out more about the condition and what's available for people with hemochromatosis? A great resource for hemochromatosis for the patients particularly is the Hemochromatosis Australia website. They have links, they have an information hotline, they can call and talk to someone with hemochromatosis and health professionals can also access that information and use that resource. Many of the primary health networks are now incorporating a hemochromatosis section on there with GPs and health professionals can access information and gives them a structured way to, um, to treat these disorders. There's a couple of terrific modules online that you can do and both of them can be accessed through the Hemochromatosis Australia website. One is a nurses learning module through the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association and one through um, ACRAM for doctors. Cindy Bryant, thank you very much for speaking with us today about hemochromatosis. You're very welcome. To listen to more podcasts in this series, subscribe to Iron Matters in your podcast app or find us at www.ha.org.au slash iron matters. <laughs> <laughs>